Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Is $50 billion in tariffs on China to penalize them for their intellectual property infringements too much or perhaps not enough? Here to talk about that is Leland Miller, Chief Executive Officer of China Beige Book. He made it into our 1130 studios, despite the fact that we still see a smattering of snow. So, uh, Leland, thank you so much for being here. What was your take on the expectation, we haven't gotten confirmation from President himself, uh, on the $50 billion figure, but what was your reaction to that number? Well, it may surprise a lot of people, but I think this is actually the baby option. So... 50 billion certainly sounds like a big number. Uh, but if you look at what the stakes are in this, the types of numbers the president's been throwing around, you have a $100 billion trade surplus that he said he was going to reverse from the Chinese. You now have a, a potential announcement of 50 billion in uh, products, getting tariffs on them, what, you know, 25% tariff. The numbers aren't that big. So I, I think the way that this is going to be looked at is is the smaller option that he could have gone. He still may go bigger. Uh, but I think if you're Beijing, you're looking at this and saying this is this is very far from a worst case scenario. So does that mean that they are going to lessen their threats of retaliation or that it mitigates some of that threat? Or does this just say, well, they've got the upper hand because they're dealing with someone who isn't sure how to how to go about this? Well, the Trump White House believes that they have all the leverage in this. At the same time, there's apparently going to be a, a long comments period where businesses can in, can 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 talk about uh, you know alterations to this regime, where the Chinese can certainly come and have talks. Uh, but I think that the most important thing is that the president wanted to get a number out there. Uh, he wanted to start this, and then. Tariffs are only half of this. Tariffs are, are the ones that are going to play the larger political, be part of the larger political conversation. But there are investment restrictions. There are other things that are being talked about, which will have much farther, longer term uh, repercussions in the relationship. And all of this, so it's very hard to evaluate what this is going to look like in the end. But from the tariff number alone, this is actually on the smaller side, I would say. Leland, looking at the uh China Daily and uh, the newspapers uh, in, in China, the um, spokesperson for China's Ministry of Foreign Affairs says, quote, we want no trade war with anyone, but if our hands are forced, we will not quail nor recoil from it. Therefore, if the day did come when the U.S. took measures to hurt our interests, we will definitely take firm and necessary countermeasures to safeguard our legitimate Interests now are there legitimate interests there? We're talking about commercial interests because this is from the Foreign Affairs Ministry, and at the same time, when you look at what is popular, at least according to the media in China, it is not necessarily U.S.-China relations. It is China relations with other countries in Asia, and specifically with what is going on in Taiwan. 
Right. Well, I mean, right now the Chinese, this this comments period is going to give the Chinese a a, a, a wonderful opportunity to be able to threaten repercussions uh, on the economic side. They'll threaten subtly some security issues. Uh, whether you're talking about Taiwan is suddenly in the news. Uh, South China Sea may become come back in the news before not too long. Uh, but to to threaten, look, this can be bad for you too. And I think that again, you you know, the Trump White House thinks they have all the leverage in this, and in a long term battle. China would be hurt worse than the United States. But in the short term, what China simply does is, is subsidize its industries, keep them afloat. They'll feel less pain than the, than the U.S. industry. So they can play this game too. And I think the major threat is the president announces something, the Chinese announce the possibility of light retaliation. And then the question is, is whether the president gets angry at that idea or whether he says, okay, well, this is exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to bring him to the table. Let's talk. Yeah, well, I wanted just to get your perspective uh, about just other Republicans in Congress and policy advisors in Washington, D.C. I know you talk with a lot of people in D.C. What's their response to this whole uh, trade tension, but specifically with China? And uh, how are they worried about how this will play into midterms? So Section 301 is which which it's what we're talking about today. It's the the anti-China tariffs for unfair trade practices. Uh, that has widespread support. It actually has a lot of bipartisan support. Um, very different from the steel and aluminum tariffs that we saw uh, a number of weeks ago. Those were uh, not supported. Uh, even within the White House, certainly amongst Republicans, certainly in Congress, uh, they were not supported because they thought that it was a bad idea. They were not supported because 232 is a blunt mechanism, which could cause a lot of problems if it goes into effect, uh, which it looks like it's not going to. So there was 232, the aluminum tariffs, steel tariffs were, were opposed. The China tariffs, there's a lot of support in that. I think that there's a bipartisan understanding now that China has to feel pain or they will not move. I think that the the fear is that the president will do something too aggressive or too loud and he will go too far in this and not accomplish what he what what people hope he will. But the idea that they need that China needs to be pushed actually has broad support in DC. Just quickly Leland, if you were an investor making an investment in China, I don't mean a stock investment, but I mean actually a physical investment, would you do it now? Uh, I wouldn't hesitate to do it right now if this is where it stops. So if you if you if you if this is the the president's broad blow against China, uh, then this is actually pretty mild, and I think investors should probably uh, be pretty relieved. It could escalate though, and we'll see. Thanks very much, uh, Leland Miller is the chief executive of China Beige Book, uh, giving us his thoughts on uh, tariffs and trade wars and China, and the president set to announce fifty billion dollars worth of tariffs against China over intellectual property violations. Facebook shares are deepening their losses today, down nearly 2.5% right now, uh, following small gains yesterday, but the biggest two-day loss uh, in a very long time, equal to a decline in market value, equal to the market capitalization of Tesla. Joining us now, David Garrity, Chief Executive Officer of GVA Research. We had uh, some words from Mark Zuckerberg. Clearly, the markets have said it's not enough. 
How do you interpret the market action and the failure of Mark Zuckerberg to uh, stave off some of the declines in negative sentiment? Well, in early crises uh, at Facebook, you know, Zuckerberg has taken this same approach uh, in terms of having a blog post, having a very sincere sort of video interview in a a t-shirt, maybe a hoodie, uh, depending on how formal the occasion might be. Uh, But nevertheless, uh, what's been put forward by Zuckerberg here is really just a matter of saying, oh, we'll make a few fixes and will promise to do better going forward. Uh, Certainly, you know, the market isn't buying it. Uh, We also know from what's been seen relative to regulators and legislators, not just here in the United States, but also overseas in Europe, it's not proving to be satisfactory. People want to see Mike Zuckerberg, Mark Zuckerberg in person, front and center in terms of doing congressional testimony or also appearing before either parliament in the UK or perhaps even the European parliament. And the one thing that we need to bear in mind here is the fact that it's not just the fact that regulators and legislators have these concerns. There's actually a significant consent decree out there since 2011 that Facebook operates under, which can have significant financial implications for the company. Give people the details about this consent decree. They may not have that long of a memory. Yeah, in 2011, ages ago, before the last presidential election, two presidential elections, the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, and Facebook entered into an agreement, a consent decree, in which Facebook said that if they were to expose any user's personal information uh, for a day, that they would pay a fine of up to $40,000. But now that we have an instance here going back to 2014, where there were 50 million users' personal data that was exposed without their consent, uh, if that fine were applied to $40,000 a day per user, the math works out to $2 trillion a day. And we're working here with Facebook that, you know, had a market cap that was roughly 25% of that at the time. Hold on a second. So could this fine, I mean, obviously it won't be implemented with $2 trillion, but could uh, Facebook still face some significant fines and who would be the person to make that decision? Well, certainly from the standpoint of the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC has already expressed that they take very seriously any violation of their consent decrees. So one might say that the idea, the decision for enforcement of this consent decree rests very much with the Federal Trade Commission and what determination they make in terms of a violation having taken place. Uh, Obviously, there will be, I'm sure, scores of lobbyists being deployed by Facebook. But this is just one thing that's already on the books that could be used against Facebook, not to consider what other prospective measures might be applied by the UK or the EU or other countries. But has it been applied already? This no. decree? So this will be I mean, the first the, time. The decree has been applied, but we haven't seen Facebook paying any fines for it as of yet in response to the news that broke over the weekend through the New York Times and The Observer. Okay. Well, um, if you go back to the November 2011 consent decree that you're describing, and I'll put it out on uh, Twitter, uh, one of the complaints that is listed by the uh, Federal Trade Commission uh, has to do with third-party apps, which is what we're talking about in terms of limiting the ability of non-Facebook companies to access personal information. And it says Facebook represented represented that third-party apps that users installed would have access only to user information that they needed to operate. In fact, the apps could actually access nearly 
all of users' personal data, data the apps didn't need. In addition, Facebook had a, quote, verified apps program and claimed it certified the security of participating apps. It didn't. If this goes back to 2011, what has Facebook been doing for the last seven years? Uh, Facebook essentially has been promising to do better going forward. You know, overlook our sins. Um, you know, we're good guys. Uh, stay with us. And people have accepted that. And the question is, you know, Facebook having gotten to a scale where you've got over 2 billion users, you know, there's the ability here to move society, to change nations. This obviously is something that cannot persist going forward. The question really for the moment is, are the regulators going to enforce existing decrees on the books? And is Facebook management really cognizant of that? Well, I'm glad you mentioned management. And yes, that's a question for them to uh, answer perhaps before uh, Congress. But I'm wondering if investors can put this question to the members of the board of Facebook because they signed the proxy statement. And if there is a material uh, loss, can't this open up the company to lawsuits? I mean, Erskine Bowles has been on the board for over six years. Reed Hastings has been on the board for more than six years. So has Mark Andreessen, Peter Thiel, and uh, Sheryl Sandberg has been on the board for nearly six years. Now, certainly the board has to be concerned here with respect to their fiduciary duty and the fact of whether liabilities have not been adequately reported in terms of the company's financial statements. I mean, these are significant concerns. And yes, the board has come out and made a statement on their own, but they haven't owned up to the extent that this is as big a problem that it could be. I mean, this is an 800-pound gorilla, or this is the elephant in the room, if you will, that no one really is paying much attention to as of yet. And even though the board, from the standpoint of governance, doesn't have majority control over the company, that stays with Mark Zuckerberg, given the capital structure and the nature of Facebook's classes of stock, uh, the board still has the legal liability from a fiduciary standpoint. And yes, investors have redress in this regard. So, you know, we've already had some act class action suits that have been filed against Facebook. Yeah. But clearly, this opens the floodgates. Real quick, in 30 seconds, if this order is uh, enforced by the FTC, what does that mean for other companies, including Google, with shares down more than 3% today? Well, I think with respect to Google, they weren't necessarily party to the consent decree, but it certainly will have to look more at the environment and look at other countries, the UK, the EU, and to see whether there are other fines that are potentially going to be levied. What are the changes that are going to be made in terms of trying to provide uh, greater protection around personal information? You know, one has to also stand back and say, you know, do we have an internet as it is currently structured and operates that's really capable of being reformed? Or do we potentially have to start looking at other forms of how else can we construct the internet to put privacy first? Because in the past, it's really been more redundancy and openness. We know that this is clearly something that has failed in this area. So we have to find and make a decision in a very large way how our society is going to operate. Thanks very much, David Garrity. He is the chief executive of GVA Research.
Now let's turn our attention to Time Warner and AT&T. Tara LaChapelle, our deals columnist for Bloomberg Gadfly, joins us now in studio. You can follow Tara on Twitter at Tara L-A-C-H. All right, Tara L-A-C-H. What are the attorneys for Time Warner and AT&T saying today in Washington, D.C.? Right. So today are the opening arguments. Uh, This trial means a lot for the future of media, not just this deal. But it's interesting because the DOJ attorneys that are trying to have this merger blocked are basically asking the judge here to predict the future, which is, of course, very hard to do and not something that the law normally does. We're very backward looking with these cases. So when you look back in history, obviously Comcast, NBC, uh, went through with concessions. And I think that's why this AT&T Time Warner deal stands a really good shot in court. Um, most people seem to believe that the lawyers on the DOJ side have a lot of work to do as opposed to necessarily the, the companies. And I think that's a big reason why. It doesn't mean that the deal should go through. It's just that there's not a whole lot of precedent for blocking a mer- vertical merger like this. So what's the government arguing? The government is arguing that this merger will raise prices for consumers by reducing competition, basically because AT&T could, in theory, keep Time Warner's content for themselves, for their own products, which they say they're not going to. AT&T says that that's preposterous, but it's really not. I mean, what's the point of doing a merger like this except to have more control over the content that is very popular and that people love to watch, like HBO, TNT, TBS, Warner Brothers movies? Um, So it's a very, uh, it's a justified concern, um, but AT&T is saying, look, we we just want to be able to bundle more of these things with our services, make better packages for our customers. We're not going to keep this content out of the hands of our rivals. What would be the point? We generate fees from them airing this. So AT&T and Time Warner, uh, in addition to the chief executives testifying, uh, their lawyers, how much do you expect an argument that this is completely politically motivated and sort of draw in some of the tweets and comments that President Trump has made about this deal? I mean, it seems like that would be that's an interesting route for AT&T to play. I don't know if that's going to work in court, because I think what this is about is how is the landscape going to look in the next few years and next decade? Who's going to be controlling what content? What are the distribution channels going to look like? Online video, not just regular cable TV that, you know, we have now. There's going to be all these different ways of watching video on your mobile phone, on your computer. I mean, all these different things that we probably can't even dream about yet. So I think they're more focused on that. And I think it's a distraction to say that, you know, somehow there's this Trump angle. I'm sure that Trump would love to see this deal blocked and kind of stick it to the CNN folks. But at the end of the day, I don't think that's what these attorneys are. I don't think this is their angle. You you mentioned that, uh, you know, this is about something that's forward looking versus something that is backwards looking. But if the government were to block this, would they then have any basis to go after Comcast and NBC and a variety of other deals in which the distributor owns the actual content? I don't know how motivated they are to do that, but I, I think it is important to look at which companies are, as a result of AT&T Time Warner agreeing to their merger 17 months ago, have already started kind of moving the ball forward on what deals they could do as a follow-up to this. Everyone's watching this deal very closely. And I think what the judge knows is that while he doesn't want to predict the future, and he said that he's going to need a crystal ball for this case, which isn't ideal, he knows that if this deal goes through, a lot of other transactions are going to come out of the woodwork. So I think that's important to consider. That are in this. That's what I was going to ask. You know, what are the implications, uh, both legally and practically? And you're saying that if uh, if, if Time Warner and AT and T win, it will unleash an even bigger uh, wave of M and A. 
Is there a particular deal that you're looking at that uh, hinges most directly on the outcome of this case? I don't think there's one that's announced yet that does. I mean, obviously, Disney, Fox, Comcast getting into the ring for that um, has something to do with it. I mean, it comes down to this question about power over content. But I think there's going to be other machinations. I mean, think about what a Verizon could do. What could some of the tech companies do if this is allowed? I mean, there's a lot of different players that could get into this because they see that content is so important and the content companies don't have enough scale in this day and age. So I think they're seeing these vertical mergers could be really good for them, but not so good for consumers at the end of the day. We mentioned that not being good for consumers. Is that because we would see the price of monthly subscription rates increase? I think that could be a result down the road. So what AT&T is saying is that what would be the point, right? Their, their whole thing is they want to lower prices, have these more attractive bundles. But by controlling more content, you have more negotiating power with your distributors, which then means there's less choice for consumers, which then means you can raise your prices for your own consumers. And it comes back to this idea of media tribalism, which is something some uh, media reports have been saying lately, where, you know, look at Disney pulling their content off of Netflix, putting it on their own apps. These companies are becoming more and more insular, which is against the tide of what consumers want. And I think that's very dangerous if we give them that ability. Tara LaChapelle, thank you so much. A really uh, insightful look at what we're seeing in Washington, D.C., arguably uh, the most high-profile antitrust case ever in U.S. history. Uh, thank you so much. Tara LaChapelle, deals columnist for Bloomberg Gadfly. Read her stuff. There are fabulous columns. She's got she a great column just to tell you, TV's death by a thousand streaming apps. It's a wonderful column. Let's talk about commodities and specifically fossil fuels. John Love is the president and the chief executive officer of United States Commodity Funds, helping to manage about $3.5 billion, based in Redondo Beach, California. But he joins us here in our 1130 studios. John, always a pleasure. Thank you for being here. Uh, tell us about what's going on right now with uh, oil market dynamics. I'm looking at crude on the NYMEX down about 1% at $64 a barrel. What has changed, in your view, over the last let's say three months when it comes to the oil market sure well we had a uh, and thanks for having me by the way we had a spectacular run since september the uh, between september and january uh, the market was up uh, wti was up about 56 percent we have uh, since since then been trading you know a little bit in a sideways range and then yesterday we had a very bullish uh, stock draw uh, on U.S. inventories, which led to the price jumping 3%. I think that might have just been a little bit of an overshoot. People are pulling back today a little bit, reassessing. Um, as of last night, that's near the highs uh, for the, the January highs for the year. So it's, uh, and I think, I think there's kind of a probably arranged based on certain factors right now in the crude market. And uh, people are just kind of reacting to both the bullish news yesterday and some of the things that are um, maybe some of the headwinds that are ahead. John, I want to talk about actually investing in the oil market. I'm looking at your uh, USO fund. It's an ETF that has uh, nearly $2 billion of assets. And uh, a lot of people think of it as sort of the instrument to use when thinking of quick trading on oil. I want you to talk about who you're targeting with this fund, given the fact uh, it doesn't really track the crude spot price over time. Sure. Well, it's actually uh, not possible to track the, spo the, the crude spot price unless you actually own physical crude. And even then you're paying um, storage costs, transportation costs, insurance, and all of that stuff. And that's kind of 
sometimes reflected in the uh, sort of the premium you pay to buy oil futures. Right now, though, the the crude market is in a condition called backwardation, um, which has been um, that which is actually a boon to investors. It actually is kind of a a yield you pick up when you roll the futures from one month to another. So uh, we've been in contango for a number of years. We've we've uh, vacillated between contango and and backwardation over the long term. Um, so when people say that USO doesn't track, it actually does track the daily change in price. But over time, um, it appears not to track um, track crude simply because of that contango backwardation factor. So that's something the investors really need to watch is go to um, any any financial site that tracks crude and find out is the market or uh, futures prices going up as you go out on the curve or are they going down? If they're going up, that's a headwind. If they're going down, that's a tailwind. Do you uh, get the sense that most of USO's investors are sophisticated traders who understand this dynamic? Because I know uh, there was a lot of attention on this fund back in 2015 when the fund uh, lost nearly 46%. And then the next year when it only gained 6.6% back, even though uh, oil had rebounded so much. Sure. Uh, 2016, actually, that's a beautiful test case for for this um, this scenario. Um, in 2016, we had very steep contango. So USO, it earned 6.5%. The spot price, um, theoretically, it went up 45%. You couldn't actually earn that. But if you look at some different products out there, we have a product that uh, owns the first 12 months. That was up in the high teens. We have a Brent oil fund. I think that was around 28% that year. So you can get much closer to um, maybe that theoretical return by kind of looking at the different uh, different options that are out there. Gasoline was another one, but that's not always the case. There'll be other times when USO outperforms. Um, when you get a big pop in the market, it's going to it's it's going to tend to track that pop better than something that's further out on the curve. Uh, and it's certainly if you're in a backwardated market, it will pick up that roll yield and do better. So 2016 was the reverse example where it was tough. Um, right now, if we stay in backwardation, that's a little bit, it's almost uh, like a little bit of income to the fund. Um, and of course, interest rates are rising as well. So where we had really no income on the collateral two, three years ago, we're now starting to see some um, collateral return coming back in. John, I'm going to show my age and let you know that the rig count was a closely watched number at one point if you were interested in the oil market. Is that still the case right now or have new ways of extracting oil from the ground really made the rig count more of a fossil? Yeah, I think I think both. People are still watching it. I do not think it's as um, efficient an indicator as it used to be, as you said, simply because if you look over the last uh, five, ten years, um, what's happened is, uh, especially since the oil crash, uh, rig counts um, are only half what they were at their peak about two, three years ago. And yet we've hit record production in the U.S., uh, over 10.4 million barrels a day. Um, right now. And the only reason that's possible is because the drillers have become so much more efficient. Um, they were forced by the OPEC uh, decision to, f- to defend market share back in 2014, 2015, to really look at their costs and really start to make changes. And so they are able to extract more. Um, we'll see how long that lasts because they have gone towards the more efficient uh, rigs, the, the wells that were already drilled, um, and they have not done as much on the CapEx front. So we'll see if that lasts. But to your point, um, it's not as efficient an indicator as it used to be, yet people still watch it very closely. John Love, thank you so much for being with us. John Love, President and Chief Executive Officer of USCF, United States Commodity Funds, overseeing about $3.5 billion in assets. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. 
I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.